perspective, us professional church people have figured out what works. And so we write a book or a few pamphlets and we package it up and ship it out to churches everywhere so we can emulate the formula and hopefully become just like the other big successful churches. And that's sort of been a cycle that's been happening in our culture for many years. But I just want to say to you, as funny as that is, and (laughs) my wife and I have been earnestly seeking God's will for this church, whatever that ends up looking like. And we've been doing that from the time uh, since before we left Alaska to come here. Of course, you know, there will always be some cultural influences in our services. Because as we design and plan for Sunday morning, some of our personalities, uh, some of our personality traits and preferences are going to come through in the service. And that's okay. God gives us different personalities and individual experiences. Otherwise, we'd all be just the same. And that would be boring. But we're honestly striving to always be open to hearing God's voice and following his direction for this church. And so however that gets packaged is okay. And I do believe, by the way, in being culturally relevant, but not for the sake of being cool or cutting edge or any other reason other than being able to present the gospel of Jesus Christ in the most effective way possible. So that might look one way today, and it might look like something totally different next year. We don't know. Cultural preferences, I'm learning, what's cool, uh, what's happening, what's, what's now, change like the weather. But it still matters that we at least pay attention to those trends, as long as we don't make being culturally acceptable in our services the ultimate goal. You see, missionaries forever in the assemblies of God, and it's probably this way in every denomination, when we send a missionary out to the foreign field, we send them off to school first. And they learn all about the culture. They learn uh, some of the basic language, what foods the people eat, what kind of clothing they wear, what customs are appropriate and inappropriate, and how that could differ from our culture. They learn all of the things about the community that they're going into so that they can adapt the message in such a way that it will be effectively received by those people, that it will be relevant. That's called contextualization. And there have been volumes of books written about contextualization or contextualizing the gospel. And that's, that's a good thing for us to do that. And it really, to be honest, isn't any different here in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, right? We have to pay attention to the culture around us, to our community, to the people that come into this church. And we have to, to some degree, contextualize the message of the gospel so that it can be most effectively received. So we do our best to remain relevant but not at the expense of hearing from God and following his leading, even if that means going against the cultural grain sometimes, okay? There needs to be some balance is all I'm trying to say. And I also want to mention today, um, as I've been thinking a lot about this, I really do feel and have felt a sense of expectancy over the past several months as it seems to me that God is positioning his servants strategically, his people at this time in our history. And, and really, he's always been doing that. If you, you see that in Scripture, of course. But I personally am just telling you that I feel a very real sense that God is preparing his church to minister more effectively to people than ever before. So we're really looking forward to seeing and being a part of what happens next here. And so our focus to grow then in 2013, we talked about that last week, hence the funny video about growtivation. We won't adopt that term. 
but that's our theme for this year. It, it should have implications far beyond church attendance if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. In fact, increased church attendance should be a byproduct of the ministry that we're producing. In other words, the church should definitely grow in numbers. Yes, it should. New people should be coming in because of what God is doing in us and, and through us and the people that are already here. Okay, And I can tell you that God is already doing some tremendous things in my own life through this church. And as a result of that, I can't wait each week to tell people that I meet about our church and invite them to come because I really do believe in what God's doing here. So, so there's this excitement in me that I'm carrying around about our church and I can't wait to share it and ultimately the gospel with others. And knowing that there may be an opportunity to see new folks grafted into our family here, into the body of Christ, when I invite someone to church is very energizing for me because the more we grow, the more we can accomplish for Christ, the greater our reach Okay, we sponsored a family for Thanksgiving in our community because it's what we could do with the amount of people that we had. And we bought a lot of food and, and some goods and things for them. And then we were, we've been growing every week. Uh, we adopted three families for Christmas and did the same thing. And you see, as we grow, we can reach out. And I've had contact with those families since, by the way, and there have been opportunities, doors open for us to meet with people and pray with people outside this church directly because of what we were able to do. So the, the more we grow, the greater our reach is extended. So on that note, and as a reminder of what we talked about last week as we looked at the direction, the vision for this church in 2013, I just want to mention again that we should all be growing this year as a church, of course, and in each area of our lives individually and particularly in our walk with the Lord. And we talked about that last week, growing in each area of our life, even in, in our physical health and being more healthy. Uh, I may have regretted making those statements last week because I've probably eaten more vegetables this week and salad than I would normally eat in a seven-day period. I will confess to you, because I have to, because there are people here who saw me. I also ate dessert a few times. But I decided I'm not going to try some crazy radical shift in my diet overnight that I know that I can't maintain long-term. So I'm trying to make healthier choices overall because I want to make progress in that area of my life. I've increased my devotional time every day this year from what I was already doing, spending more time in the Word and more time in prayer. And I've been inviting people to church, by the way, all week long. My wife and I both have. So come grow with us. Our theme for 2013 means that each one of us already here, already a part of this church, has to have some skin in the game. And the truth is, I think most of you probably already do. I know you've been active this week, but it's going to take a real commitment from each of us to put forth the effort to grow personally and as a church if we're going to see real progress in our lives and in our church this year. And that commitment is what we're going to talk about today. Okay? I've been writing a sermon series entitled Essentials. And this message will be the first installment of the series. These messages are going to cover some of the foundational issues and requirements involved in growing in the Lord. So I hope that, that through the sermon series we'll establish some common understanding, a sort of baseline about some of the core concepts of following Christ and living a life that is constantly progressing into a deeper relationship with Him, resulting in individual growth in every aspect of our lives and growth for this church and ministry, all right? 
Some of the teaching is doctrinal. Some of it is philosophical. Some of it may be open to interpretation. I can tell you that some of it will be fairly polemic, meaning uh, some aspects of Scripture, particularly the gospel narrative, the gospel story, are non-negotiable in their interpretation to followers of Christ who believe that the Bible is the inerrant and infallible Word of God in its original form. So if we want to argue about the exact location of the tomb that Jesus was buried in, that's fine. To me, that's open to interpretation. But when it comes to the literal resurrection of Jesus from that tomb, from death into life, that is not a negotiable detail for me because the scriptures are very clear that Christ's resurrection was a literal, it was literal, and without a literal resurrection, none of this means anything, right? So when it comes to the gospel narrative, the gospel story, we won't waver on that point at all. I've read many Christian books, instructional books, for pastors and teachers over the last few years that warn against being polemic or being dogmatic from the pulpit. We're being sternly warned now, these days, not to offend or be too rigid with the Word of God so as not to scare off our audience. If we take too strong a position, the argument goes we'll lose our postmodern listeners. That's the younger adult generation that is leaving the church, by the way, in mass right now in recent years in our country. Now, I, I believe completely in sharing Jesus with compassion and love. I hope that I don't ever make anyone feel like I'm forcing that on them. And I'm not wired that way. But I'm going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without apology and without watering it down because the gospel is offensive to unbelievers. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 8 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Galatians 5.11 says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And Romans 9.33 says, As it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The gospel is offensive to unbelievers. You know, it was meant to be. It was meant to convict and provoke a response. If, if I preach a gospel that is not offensive, then I'm preaching the wrong gospel. I have friends and family members who don't believe in the gospel. Their thinking is very much in line with the postmodern worldview that is so prevalent in our culture today, and I'm not sure they even realize that, but postmodernism is very much the popular position of mainstream American culture today. And it's on the rise, by the way, even within the church. And it's being promoted throughout our society everywhere. Two of the premier tenets of postmodernism are pluralism and relativism. And I won't spend a lot of time here just to say that pluralism says that all roads lead to heaven. You can get there, we just all get there different ways, whether it's Buddhism or Islam or Mormonism, Whatever it is, we all make it to heaven. And relativism, relativism says that what you believe is fine for you, 
So I have no problem with you being a Christian, but I want you to admit that because I believe in something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you should reciprocate and accept that my way is what's best for me. And anything short of that is arrogant intolerance on your part. So you've probably heard this analogy, but if I'm on the third floor of a four-story building and the building is on fire, but it hasn't reached the fourth floor yet, and I run up to the fourth floor to tell all the people there that the building is on fire and they need to get out, but they look around and they don't see any fire. They don't smell any smoke. There's no signs of a problem. What do I do when they say, you know what, Rob, you're crazy. The building isn't on fire. Do I say, well, you know, it's true. You're entitled to believe what you want, and who am I to say any different? So, you know what, okay, maybe the building isn't on fire. No. I'm, I'm going to say, you've got to trust me. The building is on fire. I've experienced it firsthand, and you've got to get out now. But they look at me and say, how arrogant. You think that you're right and everyone else up here is wrong. And they begin to hurl their inserts and call me narrow-minded and intolerant of everyone else's belief that the building is actually not on fire. This is what happens to me and probably many of you at times when we witness to unbelievers, particularly in this generation. They say to me, what is so different about what you believe and what we believe? Really, what's so different? All roads lead to heaven. The answer is simple. The difference is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the point at which other religions that promote morality and peace and love and goodness depart from Christianity because Jesus is the stumbling block. We all agree on many points of religion. Many of the, the mainline religions agree on many points of religion. But in every case, once we get to Jesus... Those of other faiths stumble at the cornerstone that the builders rejected. You see, he is a rock of offense because he requires that we abandon every other God, every other priority, every other belief, every alternative life and cling to him and him alone. And to the world, that is the very height of arrogance. To me, that's compassion. You see, I can leave those people on the fourth floor to their own devices and save myself and run out of that burning building to safety. But the heart that God put in me won't let me run out without at least trying to convince those who don't believe that this life is ultimately burning down around us. And without Christ, there is no hope. But with him, we are saved. But isn't it hard, I mean, to be put down to be laughed at, to be accused of being narrow-minded. I've been called a bigot, arrogant, living in the dark ages. Sure, it's hard. You bet it's hard, especially when it comes from your own family or your friends. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt, if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be, its saltiness be restored? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. James said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James 1.12. I was in Fairbanks pastoring the church there in Alaska, and I had lots of hospital visitations I did because it was a big church. And one day a lady called me and said, this young man doesn't go to our church, but he's in the hospital and he's dying. And I'm wondering, he's not a believer, if you would go witness to him. He's stage four cancer and he's close to death. And I said, of course I will. And I went there. I walked into that hospital room and this guy was laying there and he was, he was, it turns out, hours away from dying. I didn't know that at the time, but I knew he was close. But he was coherent and he was talking and his whole family was there and they weren't believers. You know how incredibly difficult it is to walk into that situation when people expect you, particularly a pastor, to be filled with compassion and say nice things like it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. You can just relax and, and drift off and you can be with Jesus. But, but he wasn't a believer. You know how hard it is to, to try to explain to someone in that situation with all their family sitting there that, sir, there's a... There's a death beyond this death that lasts forever, a, a place apart from God. If you don't bow your knee before him, if you don't place your trust and faith in him, and sir, if you don't do that, when you leave this earth, you won't be in a good place. How do you say that to someone? And <laughs> in a hospital room. It's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And you know, I started in to try and tell him and he stopped me and he said, you know, I don't need to hear that. I, I would like for you to come back some other time. It's not a good time. And I left the hospital and he died. Watering down the gospel so as to make it non-offensive is a useless waste of time and it does no one any good. On the contrary, Sharing the gospel without apology requires a commitment from all of us, a commitment that is essential if we're to bear any spiritual fruit at all, which is part of the growing process. So I'm going to spend the next several weeks doing my level best to speak the truth to you about some of the essential aspects of spiritual growth. And today, for the second half, the next few minutes of this teaching, I'm going to talk to you about essential commitment. Following Jesus is an ongoing commitment, and it requires us to live with intent and focus when we fail to be intentional in our commitment to God, when we lose our focus on following him, we often lose our way. I've lost my way many times in life. But he's always inviting me back. His voice is ever calling out, come follow me. And I found that essential commitment to Christ means being committed in both the private arena of my life and the public arena of my life. Okay? So let's talk about what I call invisible commitment. That's commitment to God that's present even when no one else is. It's commitment to him in our private lives when no one else is there to encourage us or to lift us up or to hold us accountable. We still remain committed to God. Invisible commitment is the commitment that no one else sees. I've found that some people don't have a lot of trouble with this. 
Some people I know really struggle with visible commitment, like public ministry, and we'll talk about that in a minute. I don't struggle with visible commitment too much. I've never really had a hard time telling people about Jesus in a public setting. But I'll tell you that for me, when fears creep in, when doubt whispers in my ear, when unhealthy attitudes affect me, is generally when I'm alone. And I'm personally more susceptible to losing my commitment, or more accurately, giving up my commitment when I'm not surrounded by others. But when I get around other people, Christians, even non-Christians, my faith is energized. I'm ready to evangelize the world. I'm fully committed. Every time I get around you, this church, I'm so tremendously encouraged, and I always feel this strong sense of purpose and drive. But commitment is more than just what we do around others. It's what we do, it's what we think, how we handle situations when we're alone in the proverbial wilderness. So we're going to use King David as a a bit of a case study today. Let's turn, if you have your Bibles, to Psalm chapter 63, and we're going to read part of this together. Psalm 63, and we'll start in verse 1. This is David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. The situation is that there are people trying to destroy his life, namely his own son, Absalom. So his son drives him out of Jerusalem. That's back in 2 Samuel 15, 23. He alienates his own father, and he's, he's trying to kill him. He wants him to die. So put yourself for a moment in David's place here. The grief of losing your relationship with your own son, the fear of being hunted and killed, the loss of your entire way of life, all of these people and circumstances are conspiring against you. So what does David do when he's alone? When, he, when he's broken and facing all of this despair, does he lose his way and abandon God? Does he allow his circumstances to derail his commitment to God? Well, let's read. Verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So the first thing David does is he expresses his great desire for God. He doesn't complain. He doesn't rattle off all the bad things that are happening or sit in self-pity. He says, my life is a dry and weary desert, but all I need right now is you. He recognizes that no matter what's happening in his life, God is the answer. So verse 2, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Okay? So the next thing David does is he begins to worship God. And in the midst of his personal pain, in the middle of all his loss, he lifts his hands and he worships the Lord. And he says, your love is better than my life. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. This isn't David saying these things because he's trying to make an impression on others. He's not in public at this point. He says, I will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. This is commitment to God when David is all alone, when no one is watching. He's fully committed to the Father when no one else sees him. And then verse 7, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. 
My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So David's next statement, despite all this going on in his life at this moment, is to recall what God has already done for him. Verse 7, he says, for you have been my help. And instead of lamenting the circumstance he's in, he says in verse 8, my soul clings to you. And then in the last three verses, David declares God's victory over his life, even though in the natural, his situation seems completely hopeless. Verse 9, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This psalm is a wonderful prescription for staying committed to God, even when we're all alone and everything is falling apart. When David is in this utter wilderness and everything in the natural is conspiring against him, again, what does he do? His commitment to God doesn't collapse. Even in his darkest hour, he remains steadfastly committed to God. So I ask you, how many times in our own wilderness, alone and we're utterly spent, do we falter in our commitment to him? Because I know sometimes it's easy to lose our focus because we focus so often on the circumstance, on what might be, and we focus on our own need instead of focusing on the answer for all of our needs. David knew when he was all alone, despairing of his own life, that there was only one essential commitment in that moment, and that was his commitment to God. And he expressed it first by acknowledging that the only answer, no matter the problem or circumstance, is God, and he begins to seek the Lord. When you're facing difficulty, strained relationships, broken relationships, big life problems, before we do anything else, we should commit to seeking the Lord and acknowledging in our minds and in our hearts and on our lips that ultimately he's the only answer. That's what David did. The second thing he did was he worshiped God even in the middle of all this heartache and despair. God is still God, right? He's still sovereign. No matter what's happening in your life, he's still righteous. He's holy. He's all-powerful and all-knowing and all-seeing and he loves us when we're hurting, he deserves our worship and admiration even when and in the midst of life presenting all of its problems. And when we worship him, our focus shifts from ourselves and our problems to the answer for those problems. The next step for David was to begin to recall all that God has done for him. And when we face these setbacks and we find ourselves struggling, sometimes very distant from God, it's always appropriate. And I think it can help tremendously to begin to recall all that God has done for you. Think back to the things he's done, the other deliverances, healings, repaired relationships. God is faithful. If you're a Christian, he's lifted you out of the burning building, out of the pit of destruction, as Psalm 40 says, and he set your feet on a rock. It's a place of safety and salvation, a place of eternal hope. So in addition to whatever else God has done in your life, we have so much to be thankful for just in the sacrifice that he's made for us. And we can all, each one of us, rejoice in the Lord as we recall his goodness to us. And then the last thing David does is he begins to declare God's victory over his life and situation, even before that victory comes. And I love that part of this psalm. That is faith in action, and it's a commitment to the Lord, even when no one else is watching. 
You see, God is our ultimate victory. He's our ultimate healing. He's our ultimate provision and deliverance. So we can claim victory in our lives even before it comes because he's promised us that. It doesn't always come how we want it to. It doesn't always come when we want it to. But ultimately, we can and we should claim his victory in every circumstance. And again, that puts our focus squarely on him and off of our troubles, okay? So when no one else is there, when everything in life is a total mess, when hope seems lost, we have to stay committed to Christ because he's always, always the answer. That's essential commitment. That's invisible commitment that no one else sees. There's also visible commitment, right? This is the commitment to God that's on display every time we step out into the public arena. This is what you do when everyone is watching. Do you stand up for the faith or do you shrink back in embarrassment or fear? I mentioned earlier that I don't really struggle with this too much, but I know people who are as solid as they can be in their commitment to Christ when no one else is around. These are, these are people I know well, and I know that they walk with God. But if you ask them to talk to someone else about Jesus, they nearly have a nervous breakdown. And heaven forbid you ask them to lead a devotion or a Bible study, they run the other way. There are plenty of people I know who struggle with visible commitment, with public ministry, okay? And look, I'm not saying everyone has to be able to stand up in front of the church and give a three-point sermon. But we are commanded to be bold and speak the truth about the gospel. The Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 was for all of his disciples, not just the original 12. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Right? Those 12 guys couldn't possibly make disciples of all the nations. And then the next verse, Jesus says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Well, we know we haven't reached the end of the age yet. So those original 12 guys are no longer here, are they? Jesus clearly was speaking to all of us. And I've heard many times from those who are resistant to proclaim Christ overtly, at least outwardly, people who have no interest in actually talking to others about Jesus say things to me like, well... The truth is my lifestyle is my witness. Look, we should all have a lifestyle that witnesses to others. That is very true. But I believe we're mistaken if we think that alone is enough. Again, in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. I just don't believe that all the nations are going to get all that Jesus commanded us by our silent lifestyle. There has to be a visible commitment to God, and it's essential if we're to fulfill the Great Commission. It is essential that we're bold in our witness and in our worship and in our testimony before others. Okay, so let's look at David again as we wrap this up. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 12. Second Samuel 6, starting in verse 12, David has gathered 30,000 of his men. And he's returning the Ark of the Covenant to the city of David. Okay, verse 12, And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of God. So David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. 
And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and, fattened, and a fattened animal. Keep in mind, there are people everywhere. This is a very public event, okay? 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is a, this is a public party going on in God's honor. And there's dancing and singing and shouting and instruments. And David is here leading this whole event. 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. So David's wife is embarrassed because he's making a public spectacle of himself. Verse 17, and they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David has pitched for it, had pitched for it, and David uh, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. So again, this was all happening out in public, right? Verse 20, And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So there are different opinions about what actually happened here. Some scholars say that David's clothes actually came off while he was dancing and he was naked. The scripture doesn't actually say that. The Hebrew language here says that David was whirling around and leaping, which has caused other scholars to speculate that he may have been exposed while he was doing that because he was wearing this linen garment instead of his royal robes. Others say that Michael was just embarrassed because David wasn't acting in a way that she felt was befitting of a king. But regardless of how you choose to interpret this passage, the point is that David was only concerned in that moment with pleasing God, no matter who was watching. So here's David's response, verse 21. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house, that's a, that's a jab, <laughs> to appoint me as prince over Israel. I mean, I can hear him right now. He is not happy, right? It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So Michael paid a price for her contempt. She didn't have any children. That may have been because David refused to be with her because of her dishonor, or it could have been because God made her barren. Again, Scripture doesn't tell us that. But the point is, she lost out because she was more concerned about image than she was about commitment to God. David understood that it was essential to be committed to God and show that commitment no matter who was watching. You see, visible commitment means honoring God and carrying out his commission to us even when we're afraid to speak to others, even when it isn't comfortable. We often make a big mistake when we confuse feelings with choices, don't we? I tell you, if I had a dollar for every time someone I've counseled with made a bad decision because it felt right, I could probably afford to take my wife to Hawaii. 
Sometimes our feelings betray us. Doing what is right according to the word of God doesn't always feel good, but it's always the right thing to do. So how can I be visibly committed to God? Sometimes that means witnessing to a friend or coworker or a student, a fellow student or a neighbor. Sometimes it means just standing up for what is right, even when the crowd doesn't. Sometimes it might just mean inviting someone to come to church with you. The point is, we can be as committed to God as anyone in our heart, but that has to translate into action, even when we're surrounded by those who don't believe like we do. The building is on fire. But we're surrounded by people who don't believe that. People that don't want to hear you say that. People who will mock you and deride you and reject you. But make no mistake, we're at war for the very souls of those who have no idea what's in store if their eyes are not open to the truth. The Christian life isn't a playground. It's a battleground. And we must be committed to Christ privately and publicly if we're going to grow in Him and bring others with us. And we close with this. Jude 1, 17 through 22 says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their, ungodly, their own ungodly passions. That sounds familiar. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. That is essential commitment. Would you bow your heads with me? Well, we all have a part to play in this life that God has given us. And we get to choose whether we're committed or not. But I recognize this morning that there may be those here today who have never made a commitment to Christ to begin with. Or maybe you have and it's been a long time and you've been away from the Lord. We all have a responsibility, a commitment to keep to Christ. And so this morning, before we close in prayer, I just want to ask if there's anyone here today, and I, I'm, I'm not going to embarrass you. There's time for talking and, and uh, more and the hour is late and so we'll move it along. But I just want to say to you today, I won't, call anyone forward right now I'm not going to call you out but if you're here today and you say you know what I need to commit my life to Christ or I need to recommit my life to Christ we're all going to pray a prayer together in a moment and we'll pray it together to make this as easy as possible and then we can talk about what's next after that but I want to give you opportunity today again I'm not going to ask you to stand or come forward I'm just asking you to raise your hand in a moment and you can put it right back down and we'll just pray a prayer together. But if you're here today and you say, you know what, I need to recommit my life to Christ or I need to commit my life to Christ. I've prayed this prayer so many times in my life I can't remember. Honestly, I have to recommit myself to Him 
over and over again. So if you're in a place today where you say, you know what, I'm, I've, I'm feel some distance from God. I've, I've fallen away, or maybe I've never been close to him. If that's you, I just want to ask you, would you raise your hand just for a moment? And you can put it right back down. Yes, are there more? Yes. Anyone else? Are there others? We're going to just pray a corporate prayer together. Yes, I see your hand. Are there, are there others? Anyone else? God is calling out. Come follow me. Come follow me. Come follow me with, with steadfast love and compassion. He waits so patiently for us to respond. We're going to pray a simple prayer together of repentance and commitment. And I'm asking one last time, and I don't want to feel you to feel pressured, but if you feel the Holy Spirit, if you feel a sense that you should respond, I'm asking you, would you raise your hand? And you can put it right back down. Anyone else? We've had several. Okay. I just want to give plenty of time. I want to ask you if you would. I'm going to pray this prayer. I've prayed it many, many times, even here. If every one of you would repeat this after me out loud, we're going to just make this commitment together, and then we'll close in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, I admit to you today that I've sinned in my life. And I believe that you gave up your life for me so that I could be forgiven of my sins and have eternal life. So I'm asking you now to forgive me for all of my sin. Save me today. Make me new. And I ask you now, Jesus, to be Lord over my life and live in me. And I commit to follow you the rest of my life. Lord, help us to stay committed to you when we're alone and when we're surrounded by others. Strengthen us with courage and and confidence to boldly proclaim the truth of your gospel without compromise. We commit this church to you and ask you to add to our numbers daily just as you did when the church first began oh that there would be such a power and a presence of your spirit in this church and these in these people that others would undeniably know that there's something different about us about upcountry church and in this world but not of it committed to you in public and in private boldly spreading your love and grace and truth and we ask you for a great harvest of souls through this ministry as we commit to following you today and throughout this year more than we ever have before and we pray all of this in the great and mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ Amen